Morning, everyone. I've had a bit of a cold this week, so my voice is a little different. Uh, but I think I can get through okay. And I tested. It wasn't COVID. It was just a cold. But I still didn't like it. <clears throat> um, we're continuing in our series on the knowledge of the holy. And we've been covering some pretty heavy topics like infinitude and eternity and omniscience and uh, transcendence. And this week... Uh, Tozer's going to go a little easier on us. We're going to focus on the chapter on faithfulness. This is an attribute of God that I think we can kind of get our head around and get our arms around and be able to celebrate and rejoice in. Um, But the faithfulness of God is different than everybody else's faithfulness, and that's what we're going to look at today. It's just how we, as in this whole series, has been about knowing God, knowing the holy, the knowledge of the holy, that is really God, not our version of God, not our version of wise, or not our version of kind or loving or faithful, but God's version of faithful, God's version of wisdom, God's version of all of these things. And it's important that God is faithful the way that he is faithful, or else we would have no security in our relationship with him. That's what we're going to unpack today. Um, I remember... One family trip when I was very young, and and we piled into, maybe you guys did this too, we piled into the big blue station wagon, and and, and we drove the the land yacht, and and we drove west uh, in all of these pictures. I'm the smallest one. Um, And, and, you know, we hit all the classic sites and uh, destinations that were along the way, and one of which was Yellowstone National Park, and the geyser, uh, Old Faithful. And uh, they call it Old Faithful because it erupts roughly every hour, the timing of which is, I learned, 90% predictable with a variation of 10 minutes, which for a sulfur water geyser is pretty predictable. Um, It's erupted well over a million times since Yellowstone was made a national park in 1872. I also learned that. The first national park, actually, ever is Yellowstone National Park in 1872. And so the famous name, Old Faithful, Old faithful, delighting tourists and smelling terribly for generations. (laughs) So if you are planning a trip to Yellowstone and wanting to torture your children as we were, you can depend on seeing old faithful erupt. You can trust it not to let you down. Although the spectacle of a sulfur geyser erupting may let you down, uh, it's really not all that special. But, But faith and faithfulness, the two go hand in hand. Of course, it makes sense that We put our faith in or we put our trust in faithful things, in trustworthy things that are dependable. And in our lives, the importance of faithfulness or trustworthiness increases with the importance of the thing being entrusted. The fact that old faithful shoots smelly water in the air at regular intervals is ironically perhaps the least important thing that most people care that they can trust in. The fact that old faithful on the hour, within 10 minutes or so, 90% of the time, erupts, nobody cares. They could have called it old who cares. (laughs) The importance of faithfulness in our lives increases dramatically from perhaps the fact that old faithful is geysering, I'll put that at the bottom of the scale, and going up through important things like my toaster not burning my toast. It's good to have a dependable toaster. I prefer that over Old Faithful erupting. Or, continuing on up through the scale, the dishwasher won't leak water into my basement while I'm away on vacation. That's for Kent Lester, if he's listening. 
And then getting even more important, the brakes on my car will work at the bottom of the hill. And even further up the scale of importance of faithfulness, my parachute will open. Or even my child's plane will land safely at their destination. So when we think about faithfulness and trustworthiness, its importance escalates in our lives with what's being entrusted. Relationally, it escalates as we put ourselves at risk with other people. Can we trust our friends? Can we trust our family? Can we trust our church? Can we trust our pastor with things that leave us vulnerable? And of course, the object of our faithfulness is always what we're depending on for security, the the toaster for good toast, the brakes for safe stopping, the parachute or the plane for secure landing. That's the object we put our trust in. We hope that they are faithful. So what about faithfulness in the very difficult situations of life that we face right now? What about our faithfulness and the faith that we have, the trust that we have in our health, in our marriage? with our finances, with our security. In fact, what about faith and trust and hope in the course of the details of our entire lives? Beyond that, what about the object of our faith and our trust with the security of our eternal souls in the course of our eternity? When when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, On what we celebrate today as Palm Sunday, the the people considered it a triumphal entry because those crowds of people in Jerusalem, that nation, really had put, for the moment, their faith in him. They trusted in Jesus that he was going to be their savior. Their hopes were on him. He was the object of their trust as he rode into the city. Mark says, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us. The crowds of people bound under the captive Roman state that Israel was in at the time. They looked to Jesus for salvation and security. Their hope was in him. Their faith was in him. And Jesus could bring them salvation. And he would bring them salvation, but not the way that they fully expected. But what about us? What do we have our eyes on? What are we looking towards for our hope and our salvation? Where is our faith? Can we trust God? Will he save us? Will he save us the way we expect him to? In the messiness of life, in the, in the struggles that we have where we are looking for a savior, we're looking for something in our marriages, in our finances, in illness, when we lose our job with our children, whether it's church or friends or funerals, all the stuff that's going on, we need something better than old faithful. We need something better than 90% predictable within 10 minutes of variability. If we're going to hang our hopes on something, it's got to be better than that. We need to have a God who's trustworthy and faithful and to be a people that can say, like Job said in his struggles, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. So what is it that makes God so faithful? That makes someone like Job struggling through what Job was struggling through? If you know that story, if you don't know that story, go back and read it. 
But to make Job say that, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Why does the Bible insist that we can depend on God? Not surprisingly, this is so important to his glory and our joy that God goes out of his way to tell us why and how our faith, our trust is safe in his faithfulness. That's what we're going to talk about today. Let's pray before we open up the rest of God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this attribute of your faithfulness is yours and you exhibit it and manifest it perfectly that you are faithful. Though everyone else be considered faithless and be found faithless, you will be faithful. And so, Father, that is important to why we trust you. That's important to why our salvation is secure. So help us to understand this in more greater clarity and detail this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So we're considering faithfulness as an attribute of God, and I'm going to start off with this verse in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. This is Paul speaking to his protege, Timothy, a young man who he's bringing up to follow him as a pastor and an evangelist. And he says to him, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now, that verse requires a bit of unpacking to get at its full meaning, and we're going to come back to this verse before we're done today. But what I want to focus on to begin with is that last statement, he cannot deny himself. God cannot go against his own attributes. This is important to understand. God is constant. He does not vary. He's utterly consistent. You can absolutely depend on God being faithful to himself. When you're trusting God, you're not trusting mainly that God is going to be faithful to you, but that God will be faithful to God. It is amazing that God is faithful to us, but he is faithful to us only because he's faithful to himself. And that's an important distinction. That's what we're going to get into today. Because God's faithfulness is not like us. This is not like us at all. We are variable. We can deny what we would call our better nature. We can say that we will be on time and show up late. We can promise never to lie and then lie at our convenience. We can assure even ourselves that we will follow through on our word to ourselves for our own good and then fail to do it for our own benefit. We don't even measure up to our own standards, but God always measures up to himself. Paul says this is something you need to really get clear, Christian. God cannot be unfaithful to himself. And like all the other attributes of God that we've been talking about in this series, this is absolutely essential to our hope, to our trust, to our faith, because it is based on God's faithfulness to himself. You see, God being God is very wise, and he's way smarter than we are. And so right from the beginning, God knew that if there was going to be any security in our relationship with him, If there is going to be any security in our salvation, in our sanctification, in our glorification, in all the rest of it, then that security was only going to come from him and him alone. And so God exemplifies this from beginning to end in his word, that you can trust in him and that he is trusting in himself and that he will never deny his own word and his own promise. 
And we see this in a few different ways. If we go back, we see it exemplified, the faithfulness of God exemplified or made, made an example of in what's called a suzerain covenant. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you. So that's how he did it. If we turn all the way back to Genesis 15, when God was still just dealing with one guy, Abram, he was called at the time, but it's Abraham. So I might go back and forth between Abram and Abraham. It's the same person. He's just dealing with one man at this point in time to establish a new covenant. He's picked Abraham out of all the people of the earth because there's nothing special about Abraham. He was worshiping other gods at the time. And he says, I'm going to establish a new relationship with mankind through Abram. I need a new relationship after the fall of Adam. And God absolutely knew that this Abram guy was not good and that all his descendants were untrustworthy. And so God establishes this covenant with Abram in such a way that the security of the covenant is based entirely on him. Genesis 15, 1 to 21 is our text. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or tap there on your phones and just follow along. It's a long text, so I'm not going to read it all, but I want you to be looking at it so that you know that what I'm telling you is what's in the Bible. You should always have your Bible open when people are talking about the Bible to make sure that they are saying what's in the text. So in summary, Genesis 15, 1 to 21, Abram is doubting God. He says the child of promise has not come yet. The heir of his household is a foreigner. Where is the great nation that God has promised? Abram's faith is wavering. And so God restates his promise to him here in Genesis 15 to make him a great nation, more numerous than the stars of the sky and all the promises that went along with that. And then in verse 6, he says that he... That's Abraham. Believe the Lord, and he, that's God, counted it to him as righteousness. That's a super important verse right there. Like, that changed history, okay? <laughs> Abram, kind of on our behalf, believed in God, and God counted Abram's trust as righteousness. Right off the top, with this relationship with God, God's going to count believing in his promise for our righteousness. Trusting God as faithful is counted as being acceptable and in good standing with him. Counted as being able to enter into his presence and receive all of his promises. Our righteousness or our goodness is not based on doing a lot of good things. Abram could never do enough good things to be counted righteous. Our perfection is not based on being perfect. Our holiness is not based on being holy enough. Our qualification with God is only in trusting that he will deliver his promise full stop. We trust that God is faithful and he counts that to us as righteousness. But Abram needed even more than that, just like we do. In verse 8 it says, but he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abram's still not sure about what just transpired. Something spiritual happened there. He believed, he trusted, and God credited him with righteousness. The promises of God were secured for him in that moment of his faith. But Abram is like, yeah, but how do I know this is going to come to pass? How do I know that I can trust your promise? And we're like Abram, aren't we? That's what we want to know, right? What is my faith in? How do I know my hope is secure? What am I trusting this relationship with God is based on? How can I be confident like Job that even though he slay me, I will hope in him? That I'm secure in God. So God, with Abram, being merciful and compassionate and being so tender-hearted as he is, and like the psalmist says, remembering that we are dust, God shows Abraham 
what the security of the promise is based on. He says, okay, Abram, you want to know why you can trust this? And he shows him by entering into, with Abraham into what would be seen as what we call now a suzerain covenant or a royal grant or a kingly covenant. And this is what he said. he said. He said to him, Abram, he said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and he cut them in half and he laid each half over against the other But he did not cut the birds in half. He just put them at the end of the row. Now, we don't really do covenants these days, but when ancient people, especially leaders of nations, made an agreement, they they literally cut a covenant. It's what the root of the Hebrew word bereath means. It means cut. And there is no covenant without the shedding of blood. That's important to remember. And, and so we have this rather gruesome scene, a heifer, a goat, a ram cut in half, and a, and a bloody path down the middle between these sundered halves of these animals with the two dead birds on either end. I guess if you cut a dove in half, there's not much left, so they just put the two birds at the end there. And now normally, in a, in a promissory covenant, both parties of the covenant promise would walk down the middle of the separated bodies together. And the symbolism of this basically means that What let happen to these animals be done to the one who breaks this promise? And we see a similar situation described in Jeremiah 34. This isn't the only place this happens. But in Jeremiah 34, the people had pledged to God by a similar covenant ceremony where they walked between the pieces that they would release their slaves and stop treating the slaves unjustly. But then the people didn't release their slaves and didn't stop treating them unjustly. And God says in Jeremiah 34, verse 18, he says, The men who did not keep the terms of the covenant made before me, I will make like the calf they cut in two and passed between. You see, this is what happens when you take a covenant. If we did covenants like this today, people would think twice about becoming lawyers, I think. Like the legal profession would change dramatically if you had to put your word out like this. But when you made a covenant like this, both parties are bound to it with their lives. Except remember, we have this poor, uncertain, and certainly going to be unfaithful in the future Abraham here, wondering how this promise is going to be kept with his God. And he is, I'm sure, not keen on walking between those pieces with God. But God knows Abram can't bind himself to a covenant like this. And so God doesn't ask Abram to cut the covenant. God does it by himself, and it becomes a suzerain covenant, a covenant made by a king to his vassals, and the king will be faithful to himself and to his kingdom, even if his vassals are not faithful to him. And so we see... Back in Genesis 15, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch as the presence of God as a flame. Smoke and fire passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates and the land of the Kenites and Kesanites and Cadmites and Hittites and Perizzites and Rephraim and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and Jebusites and all the ites. You get all of that land. It's all yours. All the ites are yours. 
But the point here is that by passing between the pieces of the covenant by himself, God is assuring Abram, you know these promises are true because I am binding myself to myself. I cannot deny myself. I'm the keeper of this promise, not you. You believe me. You have made me your king. And so I am counting your faith as righteousness. And I am faithful to myself. I can't deny my own, my own faithfulness, even though you will. And then if you have any sense of the Old Testament history after this, you know that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of Israel, every judge, every hero, every tribe, every king fell short of keeping their end of this covenant promise. They all failed repeatedly, numerous times, and egregiously, and horrifically, and terribly, again, and again, and again, and yet God remained faithful, and he rescued his people again, and again, and again, and again. And every time he rescued Israel, he said to them again, I am faithful, I keep my promises, I will not be found false. So the faithfulness of God is not like our faithfulness. God is faithful, not ultimately to us, although he is because of his promises to us, but God is faithful to himself. And you can take that to any bank. You can take that to any trial. You can take that to Satan himself. And he's got no argument against you. Because God will never deny those who put their faith in him. Again and again and again, the Bible shows us this. That is kind of the first time, not the first time, but that's the main time when God says, I'm faithful to myself. He goes between the pieces himself. He says, I bind myself to my own promise. But then another time, we can look at this faithfulness exemplified in in a marriage covenant. God wants to give the people another example. And there's many I I could do, but I'll just do this one. Uh, The prophet Hosea, talk about one of those times that Israel fell. This is one of the last times. The prophet Hosea was the last prophet to speak for God before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity by Assyria. And Israel had grown prosperous. They had all the material wealth that they could ever need. They had farms full of food. They had markets full of produce. They had entertainment, schools, distractions, philosophies, idols, you name it. Every consumer culture that gets wealthy like that, they started to worship. They started to worship the things that they had rather than the God who gave it to them. And they were faithless. Boy, does that sound like any countries today that just have so much that we worship the stuff we have rather than worship the God who gave it to us? And Israel's faithless, and they are idol worshipers. And so God tells Hosea, I've got a lesson for you to teach Israel about my faithfulness. If you ever want to read one of the minor prophets, read Hosea. It's great. Hosea chapter 1, it's real simple. In chapter 1, he basically says, I want you to marry a woman of the city, a woman of, let's say, bad moral reputation. You know the one I mean. Marry her and have children by her, and and I want you, when you marry her and have children by her, I want you to call your children Lo-Ruhama, no mercy, and Lo-Ami, not my people, because Israel is not going to receive my mercy, nor are they my people for a while. And and then in chapter 2 of Hosea, God gives Hosea a sermon to preach to the kingdom. 
that the difficulty that Israel has brought on themselves by going after other gods, by being unfaithful and chasing after other gods, Israel has brought all this destruction and torment upon themselves. And God is jealous for them. He loves them. And God's love for them is so constant that he will not have them be joined to any others that would cause them harm. And he will pursue them. And he eventually concludes in chapter 2, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. And then in chapter 3, to make it really clear about his faithfulness to Israel, he actually has Hosea go back to the woman who was unfaithful to him after their marriage and children and take her back in. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. So she's left Hosea. She's gone and been an adulteress and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, it's okay to love raisin cake. But what's happened here is that Israel has tasted the sweetness of the created rather than tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And they've chased after other gods. God is radically faithful to unfaithful people, and so he has his prophet Hosea marry this woman, have kids. She cheats on him and says, you know, as an object lesson to my people, go back and remarry the woman that cheated on you and take her back in again to show the people how faithful I am to them, even though they cheat on me. It's hard to be a pastor in those days. God asked a lot. I'm glad he doesn't ask that of me. But, but, but you see, God, God is trying to paint a picture here of his faithfulness to himself, no matter how unfaithful his people are. He is going to be found faithful. He is going to take them back. He is going to honor his promise. He will keep his marriage promise even if his people abandon him. And so back to Hosanna then, back to Palm Sunday and a, a city full of, and, and a nation full of people calling out to be saved, praying to be saved. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Will God save me? He will, but not the way they expect, but better than they could ever know. God's not simply saving us from worldly kingdoms and worldly captivities or trials, although God does do that too. God intends for us to be with him forever, to put an end to all kingdoms except his own, to wipe away every tear and make all things that are wrong and unjust become untrue. And that is all being accomplished by what's going to transpire after the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. You see, the people were looking at Jesus as he comes in and they're singing, Hosanna, save us. And they think, this is it. This is the time of our salvation. It's like, no, this is not the time of your salvation. It's just like you're close. Just wait a few days. The time of your salvation is coming and it's not going to be like what you expect. And so we see what Jesus accomplishes On the cross, he establishes again that he is demonstrating the faithfulness of God to himself and to his promise. God promised that he would save. He's really going to save. Jesus is not riding into the city to simply conquer Rome, to set a few people free from a temporary oppression for a little period of history. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to conquer death, to offer freedom to all people through all history for all eternity. 
And Jesus accomplishes that by the cross to show the faithfulness of the Father. And so we see the faithfulness of God exemplified in Christ. So just as his disciples and us don't miss what is about to happen, in a few days on the cross, Jesus gives another lesson on covenant faithfulness. We've had the suzerain covenant, the pieces divided, God going between them, Abram, covenants with me. You know, then all of Israel's failures and recoveries, and right at the end, Hosea, you know, I'm faithful even though, you know, just like a covenant marriage, I'm faithful even though you're unfaithful. And now Jesus is going to the cross, and he wants his disciples, he wants us to get the idea, he wants us to be clear about the covenant. And so he says at the Passover supper, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There is no covenant without blood. We're here at covenant again, a new covenant, another promise, a covenant made in blood, not the blood of calves or goats or rams, but the blood of Jesus Christ, his blood shed, his body on a cross. He goes to the cross. We don't go to the cross. God goes through the pieces. We don't go through the pieces. God keeping his covenant for his glory and our salvation. God sacrifices himself in the form of his own son. God keeping his covenant for his glory and our salvation for all who trust in his faithfulness. If you just believe in the promise, it's counted to you as righteousness. Look how carefully Paul makes this connection between Genesis 15 and the cross of Jesus in Romans chapter 4. He's going right back to the same stuff we just talked about. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about what just happened in Genesis 15, or rather in his context, what happened uh, 2,500 years ago. He says that Abram was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him Remember, these were the words 2,500 years ago to Abram. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Because it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you get the chain of logic? Right? It was counted to him were not just for Abram's sake, but for ours, because it will be counted to us who believe. Believe in who? Believe in him, the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. He was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus doesn't want us to miss this. God doesn't want us to miss this. There is a covenant promise that God is faithful to, and it is contingent completely on his promise and our trusting that he will deliver. And he's proven his faithfulness by sealing that covenant on the cross with the blood of his son. The father raised Jesus from the dead so that we can be fully convinced that he will do as he promised. That Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice and covenant satisfier. God alone will do what is required for the covenant to be kept. We only believe. We just trust that he has done it. From Genesis to Luke to Romans to today, God is faithful to his promise because God cannot be other than faithful. 
Back to Timothy. God will not deny himself. The only way God denies us is if we deny him. But what that means, if if we just continue to say, no, I just won't trust you, God. I'm going to put my hope somewhere else. I trust in myself. I trust in something else. I, I I, I just deny any trust in God, I deny you, God. If, I, if, 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 if you deny him and his promise, then you're not included in his covenant. And if you're not included in his covenant, then he is being faithful to himself when he denies you. Because he's made himself faithful to the people that are in his covenant. And so God, to be faithful to himself, says, I am going to absolutely save every single person who puts their hope in me. And I absolutely cannot save those who refuse to. Because I cannot deny myself by my own terms. But if we don't deny him, if, if we put our hope in him, even if it's imperfect and faltering and weak hope as Abram's was, as Israel's was, even as the disciples Peter's was, who had got to the point that he didn't even want to be identified for a little while as a friend of Jesus, <laughs> even if our faith is as small as a mustard seed, When we are faithless, God will be found faithful. Even if we don't hold up our end of the covenant perfectly, God will be perfect and he will keep his end. But we have to be in the covenant. We have to put our hope in him. We have to be part of the covenant. And once that happens, the, the moment that Abram believed in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. And the moment that you put your hope in God, you're in the covenant. And God will be faithful to himself. And everything that he's promised will come to pass. And you'll be able to say like Job, even if he slays me, I will hope in him. Because it doesn't matter what happens in this world. It doesn't matter. God has our security established for all eternity. And he will not be found faithless in that. God does not lie. He cannot fail not because he's obligated to you. We can't do anything to obligate God to us. He cannot lie. He cannot fail because he is faithful to himself. And God will never, ever deny himself. And that's why Christians have rock solid hope. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. We thank you that this attribute of your faithfulness is constructed, for lack of a better word, in this way, that you showed us right from the beginning that you are going to be true to yourself. You're going to be obligated to yourself, that there's nothing we can do that can obligate you to be faithful to us because of our performance or because we're such great covenant keepers. But you have said and reminded and told us that your faithfulness, our security, our hope, our joy is in that you are faithful to yourself. So, Lord, we rejoice that we have a God who cannot deny himself. We have a God who does not waver, does not falter, does not change, and who will be absolutely true to himself. Father, don't be true to us. Be true to you. And we get carried along in the glory of that. We praise your name for that truth. In Christ's name, amen.